This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Comcast Business, powering possibilities. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Kat Zakreski, a tech policy reporter here at The Post. I'm joined today by my first guest, the Senior Advisor for Homeland Security and Director of the Defending Democratic Institutions Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Suzanne Spaulding, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you, Kat, it's great to be here. Thank you for joining us. And I wanted to dive right in with some of the top news of the week, which is the Facebook whistleblower. Facebook whistleblower Frances Halgan said last week in her Senate testimony that the company's consistent understaffing of its counter espionage unit is a national security issue. What was your reaction to that testimony and what do you think US lawmakers need to do in response? So I do think that uh, every company needs to understand that they are a potential counterintelligence target. And if the social media platforms like Facebook haven't figured that out um, yet, uh, we have a, a real problem. So uh, I think it is something that uh, Congress needs to pay attention to. Uh, and I think it's something that businesses need to need to really pay attention to. Um, we've seen through a variety of malicious uh, cyber incidents that no company is too big and no company is too small to be targeted. And uh, they need to be uh, beefing up their counterintelligence and cyber de- defenses. And there's been a big focus since the fallout of the 2016 election on how disinformation can undermine public trust in institutions. How do you think um, that has evolved since the first focus on elections and affected other institutions in the US? Yeah, thanks for asking, Kat. I think it's a really important question because there has been so much attention focused on disinformation and its impact on elections, and that's critically important, a vital pillar of our democracy. Um, But really, disinformation is targeting democracy and its institutions more broadly. Um, I've spent the last several years looking at how disinformation targets public trust in our courts. And uh, and it is pretty rampant. Um, And uh, if we undermine the public's trust in the legitimacy of our courts, like elections, uh, the courts then stop being able to fulfill the role we ask them to play in our society, whether it's for businesses to have uh, certainty and a, and a place to go for uh, uh, independent and objective uh, determinations, or for members of the public um, who rely on uh, uh, court's decisions being binding, being viewed as binding. My worry is, for example, that those who attacked the Capitol on January 6th did so in the face of over 60 court decisions that had rejected claims of wide-scale fraud in the election. Uh, And yet these individuals at least did not view those court decisions as legitimate. And I think that's been exacerbated by disinformation, both by foreign nation states and by domestic voices. So I think it is a very serious concern and one we need to understand is broader than just elections. So as a society, what can we do to respond to that threat of a lack of trust in our court system, what should the response be? 
So that we need to take a number of responses. Uh, we need to do all of the things that people talk about in terms of combating disinformation through the social media platforms, through improved digital literacy. But I think in order to build a public, our, our best, most sustainable approach is to build public resilience against the content of that messaging. So disinformation is designed to convince us that our system is not just flawed and needing uh, you know, to change, but that it is irrevocably broken. So we need to teach civics education. We need to reinvigorate civics education in this country. It has atrophied. We need to uh, Americans to relearn our shared values so that uh, information operations aren't able to divide us as easily. We need to use civics education to remind us uh, that we are the agents of change, that the beauty of democracy is not its perfection, but its capacity to change. But only if we are informed and educated agents of that change through peaceful constitutional means. So I think building that public resilience against a message that is designed to provoke despair and anger is, is really one of the most important things we can do. And so given that threat, as well as the cybersecurity threats that I also want to get to in this conversation, are we at a point where the U.S. needs a cabinet-level official focused on cybersecurity issues? So the good news is that uh, this White House takes cybersecurity very seriously. Um, it was really uh, refreshing and, and great to see the president, even in the State of the Union address, make several references to cybersecurity. And clearly, we've seen a number of high-level White House presidential-led meetings on cybersecurity, including one that's going on right now uh, with uh, 30 nations from around the world. Um, so that's a, a good sign. And as a reflection of that, the administration has appointed a national cybersecurity director to coordinate from the White House uh, our efforts with the private sector, with other countries and across the federal government to make plans to uh, defend against and respond to significant cyber incidents. We also have a deputy national security advisor for cybersecurity. Uh, and of course, we've strengthened the role of DHS and other agencies across the federal government, um, including with additional resources. So yes, we need white, that White House coordination. And the good news is that we're moving in that direction. You mentioned that the White House meetings that are occurring this week focused on ransomware, and Russia notably was left out of these discussions. Given the role that Russia plays, the fact that many of the criminals responsible for cyber attacks um, ostensibly seem to be based in Russia, should they be part of the dialogue? So I think it made perfect sense to not have Russia as part of this particular dialogue in this meeting. This was really about like-minded countries coming together to say, look, we all share a common objective here. How can we help improve each other's capabilities and capacities and work more collaboratively together to uh, through law enforcement actions, through uh, sanctions, through um, uh, uh, you know development of norms, uh, so that we can uh, uh, better defend against and respond to these uh, this uh, cy cy malicious cyber incidents. So I think it made perfect sense not to have one of the key perpetrators come into that meeting as we talk about how can we regulate uh, cryptocurrencies and and uh, look at ransom payments and 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 use our law enforcement more effectively. I do think it makes sense at some point uh, to have those conversations. 
uh, with Russia and with China. When I was at DHS, I was involved in lots of conversations with China around cybersecurity. But this particular meeting, I can understand why they were not invited. A major focus of the Biden administration has been rebuilding America's relationship with allies um, after years of an America first um, national security policy. How do you think that has affected the U.S.'s ability to work with other countries to respond to cyber attacks? Well, we do need uh, to work with other countries and we need to have their trust in order to do so. And uh, so I think the steps the administration has taken are really important. Again, this meeting that's happening now, um, the executive orders that have focused on not just improving our own capabilities and, and within uh, our own defenses, but on, on using our resources and capabilities to assist others and to get insights from other countries. Uh, uh, so I'm, I'm hopeful that we will continue to strengthen that uh, our role on the international stage on cybersecurity. And one of the things I'm a member of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, one of our recommendations was to elevate a senior position, create a senior position within the State Department for cybersecurity to ensure that we are giving it the kind of priority in our international discussions and our representation at standards bodies, et cetera, that it requires. And I wanted to ask you more about that position with the Cyberspace Solarium. You've said in the past that cybersecurity is not a partisan issue. So what should be lawmakers in Congress? What should be their top priority as they're trying to respond to these threats? So yeah, the Cyberspace Solarium Commission was a wonderfully bipartisan group led uh, by a bipartisan uh, team from Congress. Uh, Angus King, who is a, an independent who caucuses with the Democrats and Congressman Mike Gallagher, a Republican. Uh, and we had a, a, a Jim Langevin from Rhode Island and Ben Sass from the Senate as well. And uh, it has had remarkable success as a result, I think, of having reached a bipartisan consensus around the recommendations. And um, nearly 25 of our recommendations have already been enacted on a bipartisan basis by Congress, but there are a number of, of provisions that have not yet been acted upon. One of the ones that I think is particularly important is this Bureau of Cyber Statistics. So we really, we there's a lot of talk about getting information from the private sector and there's legislation pending on mandatory reporting, which we can talk about. Um, but I think as we get information from across the government and the private sector, then it's incumbent upon us in the government, and I, I, I'm now no longer in the government, but my, my heart is still there. It's incumbent upon the government to take that information and give it some context, analyze it, add value to that information, and then get it back out to the private sector and across the government and to other governments uh, where it can be used to help us defend our networks. Too often, I think the private sector feels that that information goes into a black box, that they never see it again. So I think that's uh, very important. I do think that the Cyber Diplomacy Act, creating this position in the State Department, is very important. And I think uh, understanding where we have key systemic risks. So there's legislation around identifying systemically important critical infrastructure that I think is uh, ought to be prioritized by Congress. And we have a reader question from you. Um, James from Maryland asks, what is the role of government in this beyond protecting the government itself? Or is this primarily a private sector issue? 
Yeah, James, great question. Um, it is a key issue for both government and the private sector, and they have to come together and collaborate and work together. Uh, the government has an important responsibility to protect its own networks to make sure that the government is able to deliver the goods and services and functions um, that the American public relies upon it to deliver. Uh, but the government also has an important role in trying to deter activity by these bad actors. Incredibly hard to do in cyber, um, but I think it's, it is a role for the government. Uh, to both impose consequences and deny benefits to our adversaries. Um, it does have this important role on the, on the international stage, working with our multilateral partners, an important role in law enforcement. Law enforcement has been playing an increasingly important role uh, in going after uh, criminals in cyberspace and in taking down uh, infrastructure and networks. Um, our intelligence uh, community obviously has a really important role to play, both in helping us understand and in, and uh, and again in potentially taking action against uh, adversaries. So very important roles that the government can play, and making sure that information that it gets and insights are shared with the private sector, with state and local and territorial and tribal governments. Um, that everyone is getting the benefit uh, of the things that we learn. But the private sector has a really critical role to play, both in terms of innovation, which you'll hear about, I'm sure, from your next guest from Palo Alto, uh, but they need to continue to innovate technologies and, and ways in which we can better defend our networks. But also the private sector is the primary owner of critical infrastructure. The, those things that provide us with electricity and transportation and water and financial services and health services. And so they've got to be uh, there doing the things that they can do to defend their networks, just as we ask businesses to put locks on their doors, right? They lock their valuables in safes. They put up sensors and surveillance cameras. They've got to make sure that they're doing everything they can to make it harder for these malicious cyber actors. What role does the government have to play in, in incentivizing businesses to adopt some of those best practices and cyber hygiene? Yeah, they're, you know, they're, one of the things that government can do, and again, this is, goes back to that Bureau of Cyber Statistics, is to help businesses understand the return on investment from cyber uh, investments, right? It's really hard to do right now because there's not enough data out there because companies don't talk about when they've had cyber incidents uh, unless they are forced to by primarily state laws around the theft of personal information. But a lot of cyber incidents are st stay, stay behind the scenes and we don't hear about them. So there's not a lot of data that helps uh, CISOs, those who are the, the, the chief information security officers, make the case often to their management for why they should be investing in uh, in greater defense of their networks or response capabilities. So, so that's, you know, I think one of the things that government can do, again, is to provide that kind of information that would help them make that case, gather that information and provide it. Um, you know, government uh, can provide incentives to business um, through tax incentives, uh, through challenge grants for uh, rewarding innovation. Um, I, but, uh, uh, but I think that really the key is to try to help the market uh, play a better role in incentivizing businesses. Uh, consumers need to make demands that businesses be more secure, and that will help drive the market. Um, and then I think where the market fails 
incentives may have a role, but also some mandates may have a role, just as they do in environmental regulations, for example. What are some examples of the mandates that you'd like to see that you think would move the needle? So again, I want to emphasize, I think our, our first and best option is to try to get the market. Uh, to The market's going to be a much more efficient way of getting businesses to do the right thing and make the right investments. But the market won't always uh, take care of these. There are externalities. There are harms to the public and to the nation that won't be reflected in a business's bottom line, for example. And so in some of those cases, we need government to step in. And the systemically important critical infrastructure may be one of those areas where uh, a single business, the uh, impact to their bottom line may not be uh, anywhere near what the overall impact to society is from their having insufficient uh, defenses for their network or capability for responding to a cyber attack. So in those instances, I think the government does need to think about, let's start with getting that information. So let's start with perhaps some mandatory reporting. Easiest, I think, is to require reporting of ransom payments so that we can begin to get our arms around the scale and scope of ransomware. Right now, there is no reporting requirement, and so we assume that the we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg on ransom uh, incidents. We need to understand with that data uh, what that what that looks like, um, and so that we can all come together to better defend against. I think uh, companies that are uh, responsible for infrastructure that that provides essential goods and services to Americans, where there is this systemic risk. Uh, may need to bear a greater burden, and that might include need a requirement to report on significant cyber incidents, again, so that we can understand and that we can all come together to do a better job of defending against and responding to those incidents. So those are, I think, a couple of the key areas that where I think government really should be looking seriously at mandates. And do you think that the recent colonial pipeline attack changed the conversation in Washington about mandates? I do. I, I think the colonial pipeline attack really got the public's attention. Um, this, uh, you know, having to uh, line up at, at gas pumps and pay more for gas is something that hits every American. And so what's interesting about that colonial pipeline attack, um, among other things, is that it was really a crisis of communication. Uh, in fact, there it did not have that great an impact on the supply of fuel, but the uh, American public kind of panicked, and that led to the long lines at uh, gas stations and emphasizes the importance of communications and having a, a quick and effective response when cyber incidents happen. But I do think that once you've got an issue that where uh, members of Congress might be asked questions about it at town halls when they go back to their districts or their states, uh, that tends to get the attention of members of Congress and policymakers, and I think Colonial Pipeline did that. Well, we're about out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Suzanne, for joining us today. Thank you, Kat. Glad to be with you. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. 
Tech's ubiquitous and ever-evolving nature has led to a proliferation of cybersecurity attacks, both in the public and private sectors. Today, I'll be speaking with Shenna Seneca Tarnish, Vice President of Cybersecurity Products at Comcast Business, about the need for cybersecurity amid ongoing data breaches. Welcome, Shenna. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you. Let's jump right into the topic at hand. The ongoing pandemic has altered virtually every aspect of our lives. And that's especially true when it comes to how businesses and consumers leverage technology. In what ways has it changed how we think about network security in particular? From a security perspective, the pandemic has expanded businesses' networks. Prior to COVID, businesses could contain all of their data and security within their brick and mortar infrastructure, but that's not how we're operating anymore. Even though workers are remote, they need to be able to securely access the same data they could previously when they were in an office building. So to be able to protect this data is a different model for businesses altogether. Um, some businesses were ahead of the curve and able to respond quickly to the pandemic without much impact to their security posture, but most had their had employees that would work remotely only on occasion. So scale and capacity was a big deal for those businesses and adding additional security on top of that. To your point, businesses are now expanding their data and security beyond brick and mortar locations uh, as employees have pivoted to the virtual realm. Many organizations are now implementing a zero trust model, which is essentially a security framework requiring all users be continuously validated before receiving access to applications and data. Still, we are repeatedly hearing about new security breaches. Is zero trust realistic? And perhaps more importantly, does it work? Zero trust is absolutely realistic and it works, but achieving it can be a monumental task. It's, it's important that businesses first prioritize the most impactful risks and then continue to build out from there because there are many layers to it. Um, only setting up privileges for the things you must connect to requires a lot of administration and planning and organizational alignment, which is why it can take a long time for businesses to fully implement it. Uh, you often hear defense in depth, which is crucial because there are so many different ways for hackers to come in. And by now, most would agree that zero trust is the future and ultimately the best defense, but it can be daunting for those that don't have a good handle on all of their assets. If that part feels challenging, then everything else likely seems insurmountable. Um, it, it is a very transformative task for a company. You noted that there are various entry points for hackers, which is really what makes cybersecurity so challenging and complex in uh, many ways. How can we then fix the gaps being targeted by hackers in order to have more resilient systems? In other words, how do we get ahead of those breaks in the system? Defense in depth is critical and having a comprehensive security program for your business and understanding the different threat vectors that your business may face is, is very critical. And you want to prioritize how you're doing risk assessments and vulnerability management and patch management. All of these things that it, it takes a constant effort to be searching for potential openings for bad actors. and closing them quickly 
So if there is a new vulnerability that is out, it's important to have a program in place to quickly see if you have this vulnerability and then act quickly to close it. The faster you can do this, the better the outcome. Seems as though speed and agility uh, are really key to getting ahead of security uh, threats. For some context, data breaches in the first half of 2021 exposed some 18.8 billion records inflicting serious damage on victim organizations. Let's end by looking ahead. As we look to the future, what are cybersecurity trends that are on the horizon and what should organizations look out for? Yeah, it's important to be able to detect and respond. A lot of security up to this point is detection and then telling the customer they need to, to do something about it. But leveraging automation and intelligence to not only detect but respond on the customer's behalf will be the future. You know, technologies like machine learning and AI will allow businesses to quickly respond in an automated fashion it goes back to speed. We know that acting quickly is important in preventing breaches and infiltration. Um, more data correlation will be key to monitoring logs from everything. And then using machine learning, businesses will be able to quickly assess the situation and determine risks and automatically close the issue. Absolutely. Very well said. Well, when it comes to cybersecurity, it's quite evident uh, that your best offense is a good defense, uh, especially as attackers seek out new ways to take advantage of the ever-changing uh, tech, uh, tech sector. Uh, so thank you so much for this informative discussion, Shenna. Such a pleasure chatting with you. And now, back to Washington Post Live. My next guest is the CEO of Palo Alto Networks, one of the largest cybersecurity companies. Kesh Aurora, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you very much for having me, Kat. Thanks so much for being here. And uh, as you might have heard last discussion, there is a heavy focus right now on ransomware. And I know that your uh, in-house consulting team has been doing some on how these trends have evolved over the past year. So in 2020, as we've seen the scourge of ransomware attacks, how has your company found that they're changing? Well, what's been interesting, Kat, you know, I, I often say that your attacks have gone from being a hobby to a profession, and there's no better example of all seeing uh, as we've seen ransomware. You know, last year, we saw a few big cyber attacks. Uh, they were typically caused by supply chain events. So it isn't attacked a particular company, but they attacked an infrastructure provider that provided infrastructure to lots of companies, government agencies out there. And when they were able to get into that chain of technology, they were then the door open for tens of thousands of prizes or government agencies to be compromised. And what the bad actors did was, in the case of, in the case of the exchange server attack, they used they they used that vulnerability and established themselves in the infrastructure of companies, enterprises. And actually, you know, learned was they were offering ransomware as a service, uh, believe it or not, where they said we have this enterprise. If you go take that access, make something out of it, you can share. So they're running account of their own ransomware as a service app store. And what we saw, all a lot of uh, various actors around the world went about getting the structures of companies, of agencies, encrypting their data, extracting the data, locking their systems down, and putting ransomware asks on the table 
And we, the average ransomware ask go to $5.3 million in the last year. This number was smaller a year ago, but you're seeing the proliferation of uh, both ransomware as, uh, you know, I'd say, I'd say professional ransomware actors come into the game. And so what are the consequent businesses of these professional ransomwares entering the game? Should they be thinking about communicating with their employees to secure themselves from attack? Well, you know, you have to do both, not just communicate with their employees. Employees are definitely one of the, the weaker links in this, in this story. Because yeah, you can compromise employees a lot easier than you can compromise systems, but you also have to look at your entire shirt and make sure, are you ransomware ready? Are you ready that if you got breached, do you have the protections in place? And ideally, you don't want to get breached, so you want to have protection in place, protecting your infrastructure. But in the case, uh, God forbid, you actually get breached and you have, you have somebody who is holding you uh, hostage to ransom, uh, you've got to make processes in place. You have to make sure that you have escalation capability in place. You have to make sure you can systems back up and start operating if you decide to take the bad actors on and choose not to. So a lot of work needs to be done by every every company. And as you know, the White House Summit going on as we speak, which is actually tackling a lot of these issues in terms of government due to help to try and create less incentive for and actually to penalties and punishment for people who engage in ransomware. Talk to you a little bit about the relationship right now between the government and the private sector when responding to cyber attacks. Um, at a recent summit, President Biden said that sector has the quote responsibility to raise the bar when it comes to cybersecurity. Do you agree? Well, you know, we've constantly been raising the bar. Most governments around the world use uh, protection from the bar. So the private sector has been innovating and in creating the capabilities that allow us to protect, enter, protect agencies, protect the government. I, I suspect that uh, what uh, President Biden means by uh, us having to raise the bar, I think we need to get better at collaborating with the government and having a public-private partnership where we can share see out in the public domain with the government they can share threat actions back with us and actually try and reduce this mean time to remediating some of these issues and and a lot of good work happened with the new administration in place where we've seen a few executive orders where incentives have been for all of us to participate and for us to, to sort of coordinate our activities to make sure we can act to bay what do you think that the Biden administration can from the private sector when it comes to responding to these threats? Well, you know, Kat, the problem of cybersecurity is not something that got created last year or the year before. This is something that has happened in technology over the last 20 years. Think about it, 20 years ago when I started Google, if you search for a company, you'd be happy if you found information about them. Today, Pretty much every company, check or not, we actually engage with our customers online. We are able to provide goods to them wherever they are. So pretty much we've opened up the sockets to everything, technology infrastructure in our business. You know, we can pay our bills online. We can go you know, regulate our temperature at home online. Now, every one of those connections is a potential attack vector. That if you're not careful how you protect that connection, how you protect that service, how you protect that application, you have to for a net new attack vector. So what has happened is there's been an explosion of attack vectors. 
were relying on a technology infrastructure where half of it was not to be open to the internet. So the, the ability to protect it is very good. So in that case, I think what the Biden administration could do actually create an incentive to upgrade and improve our infrastructure as fast as possible. That's one part we have to do, which will not solve too, which will take a while to solve, but setting us down that path, making sure we are all focused infrastructure. Then on the other hand, we can make sure that we are ready to respond to any of these issues that come upon us, and which is what you're seeing today, the, the ability of like-minded actors to get together and talk about how to mitigate these things, how to create, how to create punishment. Yeah, because today there's not even clear rules of engagement that if you're sitting in third party country, how do you go engage with local governments and get them to stop? This is kind of the new wild west, if you will. It's a really good point, and I think you make a good point that these attacks aren't new, but it does seem in the past year that has woken up to the new stakes of these attacks with events like the colonial attack. How do you think that event has changed the dialogue between Commodores and Washington? Well, you know, Kat, I don't want to be an alarmist, but if you think about it, if uh, it is easy for somebody sitting in a different country to be able to bring our critical infrastructure down and create chaos. Uh, mild chaos in cases, you know, Suzanne was people lining up at gas pumps and having to pay more for gas. But just extrapolate that and think of all the critical we rely on, water, electricity, you know, uh, oil pipe, a whole bunch of critical infrastructure we rely on. And if it is so easily uh, brought down remotely, I think the next, the next frontier of warfare is going to be through cyber. Most nation states are prepared uh, for offense. They're not as well prepared for defense. And we have a we have a real responsibility at our end to make sure we upgrade the infrastructure. This just doesn't apply to critical infrastructure. It applies to federal systems. It applies to state and local systems. Typically, don't get a lot of in investment. And most of your data and my data is lying in some state database, whether it's your driving license data or your medical uh, data. So there's a whole bunch of whole bunch of data out there, well protected. So given those stakes and the changing nature, how should executives be thinking about this when they might be facing threats from state actors, as you just mentioned? That's a great question, Kat. And I think just like we do in our personal life, you have to, you know, security comes at a cost. Right? I mean, every time you and I go to the airport, we have to take off our belt and put our laptop. So it comes at a cost, whether it's the cost is inconvenience or the cost is real money. There's a cost. To so we all have to figure out what is the right balance of how much cost are we make or how much money are we willing to invest in protecting ourselves? And on the other hand, you know, how secure do we need to be to be able to withstand these? All I would say is that on a scale of one to 10, we're probably at a three. And I think six or seven is to be. And I am saying that generically across uh, federal agencies, across state level agencies, across uh, enterprises. And we have a climb from three to seven. But you know, this uh, with the current administration, some of the recent unfortunate uh, attacks, we're seeing awareness across enterprises, across governments, where uh, at least that awareness is causing people to try and take action. And given that, do you think that the government's to mandate specific parameters around private sector cybersecurity networks? Well, uh, that's an interesting question. Look. Uh, I think cybersecurity could benefit uh, with some consistency. 
and some higher in terms of what we all need to aspire to, just the way President Biden said that the private sector needs a bar higher. We all have to have a bar that to, to aspire to. And depending on the category of responsible for, if it's critical infrastructure, it's essential services, I think the bar needs to be higher. Essential services and critical infrastructure, uh, them being down because we cause chaos and could got, cause you know a whole amount of disruption in any nation state. Perspective, I think the bar needs to be higher. The government needs to have very clear guidelines as to what their actions are from people who are entrusted with providing us essential services. Every corporation, every enterprise needs to also be held accountable. You know, today we have SEC holds us financially accountable, and they do a good job of auditing and scrutinizing us so that we all. And I'm pretty sure there is a version of that we can think of in the cybersecurity realm, which would all of us, and today we're talking about ESG. I think similarly, there should be a concept of having and guidelines for cybersecurity. And so just to clarify, you think there should be a new government agency tasked with overseeing the cybersecurity sector? Well, I think there is already enough agencies. We don't need more agencies to govern the private sector. But I think having some sort of guidelines and rules, which are in some degree having them out there for all of us to understand. Look, the good news is enterprises are very, they understand the commercial cost of a cyber attack. They understand the business which will be caused by a cyber attack. So, you know, we serve 85,000 customers around the world, seeing that there's heightened awareness and and a, a willingness to engage and get cybersecurity posture. So I don't think there's a lack of will in the in the picture. I think having some consistency in terms of guidelines of what is good look like would be helpful. And that's self-regulated fashion that can be done by public-private partnerships. There are many, many ways to get that. There's been some discussion around what role the industry could play in standardizing cybersecurity practices, just like you fire alarms in a house to have you know, a certain rate on your insurance. What sort of cyber hygiene do you need? Do you see a role for the uh, insurance industry here? Well, you know, there are uh, various insurance agencies or companies which will give you cyber insurance. Uh, the, the challenges you know with cyber is that there is such a disparity in the technical infrastructure around every company, every agency, uh, that without that consistency, it's very hard for a third party outside in to judge how secure your infrastructure is. And clearly, if you're in a, you want some degree of assessment of your infrastructure security capability, you put a price to, to sort of giving you the insurance. So yes, they're all working hard towards that, that scale. I think it's going to take some time. It's going to take some time for us to create some degree of a consistent so we can assess each company in a common framework and say, okay, you're one on a scale of one, you're 10 on a scale of one, 10 to, one to 10, and you're five. So every one, depending where you rank, premium is going to be slightly different. But I think that consistency of framework, that evaluation is not out there. Got it. And I want to take a moment to bring in a question. Um, David from Virginia asks, can digitums ever be entirely secure or only relatively? And how do we know where we stand? That's a great question, David. You know, he, David's right. It's very hard to know how secure you are. And it's kind of like if you live in our homes, you know, we think about our homes, say, how secure are we? You know, if you have metal doors, do you have glass, do you have a strong lock, do you have many windows? So we all have a sense of, you know, what our vulnerabilities. Uh, all I'll say in the technology world, the more recent your infrastructure, 
the more likely it has more security built into it. The more legacy or infrastructure, the more it wasn't designed for security. Now, of course, there are people who have then, you know, put uh, put ring fence that and put security around it. But generally, as a rule of thumb, a good way to think about it, um, and and really depends on how critical operation is, where the data that you have, and how how the management, the public, the device or the agency feels about making sure uh, that data needs to be secure. And I wanted to ask you too, obviously we're about 18 months pandemic. There's been a lot of cybersecurity concerns for companies like The Post. We're working from home in, in a lot of instances. How have you seen security threats evolve during the pandemic with people working from home? And how has that changed you things at Palo Alto Networks? That's a, that's an amazing. I think you've hit the nail on the head because what we've discovered is as people have started home effectively, you have created an extension of your office to your home because you're dialing in, you're logging into the infrastructure, you're checking your email, you're checking your data. So you're basically, you know, the Palo Alto Network, for example, now has 12,000, which are the 12,000 employees of ours, which work in different parts of the world. We have to protect the entire 12,000 employee network so from that perspective the threat vector ended uh, you know clearly by magnitude uh, given everyone's working remote we think that the threats out there are actually targeted to people working from home or systems that allow working from home. it is a decent phenomena people had to rush out and make it happen so clearly people who are not well prepared perspective have left the door open and and run the risk of an attack from a remote working solution and you know we've seen a lot of success at Pulse from being able to provide many of our customers that secure capability to allow their employees to work. Like some of them have gone out publicly and said they are going to uh, sort of perpetuate people who work from home because they feel that their infrastructure has been secured by us and is working for them. And because it is Cybersecurity Awareness Month in October, I wanted to ask you. What are some simple steps our viewers could take to ensure that improving their own cybersecurity? That's a great question. Uh, before I joined Palo Networks, I actually uh, realized that my accounts have been compromised because I had the habit of trying using the same password in multiple places. And what happened is that somebody got access to some password dump and where I'd use the password and the email address. They tried that across 20 or 30 services. They compromised four or five offices. My Spotify was gone. Somebody had access to some other some other services that I had. I think the, the most important part that our viewers can do is make sure that you are some sort of password manager. You are using some sort of mechanism, whether it's using Google Query Passwords or Microsoft or a you know, third-party password manager. Make sure that passwords are distinct. Make sure you have multi-factor authentication across some of your most important, whether it's your bank accounts or your social media accounts, if you so care, and your email especially, because you'll be surprised how much information there is in your email that uh, once in this can be used to. You know, I've seen people's uh, money being extracted from their bank accounts because they have. So you just have to maintain hygiene around access to our capabilities. Uh, you know, interesting study we did that a third of the people don't know whether their what their Wi-Fi router password is. That's one of the easiest attack vectors. If your Wi-Fi router is open, then bad actors from your router and access all the traffic that is going in and out of your home. 
Well, it is always amazing to think about how simple some of the changes are that make a big difference. Thank you so much for joining us today. That's all the time that we have. Thank you for having me, Kat. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.